0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This podcast contains explicit language.
2: Welcome to So That Happened, the HuffPost politics podcast about things that happened. This is Arthur Delaney and I'm joined in studio... By my colleague and So That Happens producer, Zach Young. Hi, Arthur. Thank you for being with me. Of course. So uh, this week we've seen – things are slowing down a little. We had some amazing Trump lies uh, come to light, uh, which were – I am fascinated by these. He said that the Boy Scouts called him to say he'd given the greatest speech of all time. We already knew that they put out a statement after his speech saying – We're really sorry. That was horrible. And he also claimed this week that the uh, president of Mexico Mexico called to uh, congratulate him on his border security efforts. And then this week the government of Mexico said no.
1: I like to imagine that was one big conference call. Donald Trump, Enrique Peña Nieto, and all the Boy Scouts.
2: In Trump's mind, there is a conference call happening at all times with (laughs) just everybody praising him. And it's, it's very disturbing in addition to being... Sort of amusing, but enough about that. Uh, we need a report from Politicon, Zach. Since that's where you went last yeah. week, and you did a live panel. <laughs>
1: yes. So I was dispatched by HuffPost to Pasadena, California, this fa- this past weekend for Politicon, which is a big gathering of basically political hotshots in the convention center.
2: It's like Comic Con, but for politics. Yeah,
1: with with worse costumes, a lot <laughs> of red baseball caps.
2: Right, well, well, so instead of dudes in, like, Jean Jaggetts who are like, I drew a comic book, it's yeah. Newt Gingrich. Yeah. There was a
1: fairly unconvincing Abe Lincoln there, as far <laughs> as costumes go.
2: Were there stormtroopers?
1: <laughs> there were no st-
2: stormtroopers. Huh. Well, you know, when I went to Politicon two years ago, there were stormtroopers, indicating strong con crossover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Scaramucci was supposed to be there,
1: but he pulled out after his uh, interesting week last week.
2: Oh, yeah. Yes, we had a Scaramucci. That yeah the yeah. other weird thing that happened.
1: Um, but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. Uh, Anthony uh, Tamanik did his uh, Trump impression. Oh yes uh, one night, which was great
2: and, um, and who did you talk to on your panel?
1: So our panel, my panel was uh, the at the end of Sunday, which is the second day we talked to Simone Sanders who is the national press secretary or was the national press secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign and is now a CNN commentator you see her on there all the time. And this guy, Austin Peterson, who was the runner-up to Gary Johnson in the Libertarian primary.
2: All right. So that happeners, let's take a listen to Zach Young's panel at Politicon in Pasadena.
1: All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to HuffPost's So That Happened podcast. Normally, we would be recording from the depths of the HuffPost politics office in Washington, D.C. But this week, we are at Politicon in sunny Pasadena, California. Hi, everybody. Hey. It has been an amazing weekend of politicians, uh, activists, commentators, uh, and whatever the hell Roger Stone is. It's a hot, the show. But today on the show, we have two very interesting guests. They may be miles apart politically, but they have one thing in common, which is that they both participated in one form or another in 2016 presidential campaigns. On my left, you know her as the CNN political commentator whose hair is always somehow perfect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was also the national press secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign. Please welcome Simone Sanders.
3: Hey, hey. Thank you all for having me today.
1: On my right, he's a former Fox business producer and current Missouri Senate candidate on the Republican side. But he was also the runner-up to Gary Johnson in the 2016 Libertarian primary. Please welcome Austin Peterson. Hey. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Simone, um, I wanted to start with you. Uh, Tell me a little bit, like, where were you in your life when you made contact with the Bernie campaign? How did that come about?
3: I was, um, so I worked a governor's race. So I've worked a bunch of, so I've worked, like, maybe 14, before Bernie, I worked, like, 14 different campaigns. 14? Yeah, 14. I've worked, like, look, mayoral races, judges races, city council races. Um, But in 2014, I worked a governor's race in Nebraska, and I decided win or lose, I was moving to D.C. So I moved to D.C. I started working for this consumer advocacy think tank uh, and I worked for the Global Trade Division. I was their press person. And clearly through that, I got very familiar with Senator Sanders. And um, six, seven months into it, I decided I came to D.C. because I wanted to do presidential politics, which, like, who doesn't? Who doesn't go to D.C. and, like, I want to work on a presidential. It's Everybody. And uh, I had went on literally 27 different interviews. If there's a Democratic entity in D.C., I interviewed there. And after my 27th interview, I'm sitting in my office and Jeff Weaver just randomly called my cell phone and said, I got your resume. I think you're great. Do you want to come work for us? And I was like, who? Hello? Who is this? (laughs) Um, And we talked about Bernie. I talked to a couple other different people, got a chance to talk to Senator Sanders and. He said he liked me, and they hired me.
1: So, Austin, I feel like, like libertarian politicians often have a kind of origin story about how they got into government. Right. Was it like your dad was fined for braiding hair without a license, and you said, <laughs> never again?
4: No, my father was a Green Beret. He was a very conservative gentleman. Uh, but uh, we, we were very much raised with a live-and-let-live live philosophy. Mm-hmm. So when it came to social issues, you know, love your neighbor and treat them as you would you know, want to be treated. So um, I mean, I naturally was a libertarian because I believed in uh, that you ought to be able to keep the fruits of your labor. But on the social issues, whatever, wherever you come down on it, government should stay out. And culture is something that sh- that uh, that should be you know decided in the court of public opinion, not in an actual court. Um, so whatever, you know, you would, uh, I, I had a quote that actually went viral during my presidential campaign where I said that I wanted to live in a world where gay married couples can defend their marijuana fields with fully automatic machine guns. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, That's and a good line. Yeah, good. yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's true, right? So um, generally fiscally conservative, right? But on the social issues, again, agnostic. So, um, you know, I, I, I started out as a street activist for Congressman Ron Paul. I used to stand in the New York City subways and pass out flyers for Ron Paul and, and um, I ended up, uh, you know, putting together about a 1,200-person group in downtown Manhattan and raising over a million dollars for the congressman. And Libertarian Party hired me. Uh, I worked on a project to get Judge Napolitano his own show at Fox, which was mm-hmm. successful. And after that, um, did some Tea Party activism and started my own business and uh, ran for president of the United States last year on a campaign of taking over the government so I could leave everyone alone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when did it first occur to you that this might be a year when the Libertarian Party, which normally gets kind of ignored— uh, might be able to generate some interest.
4: Well, I could tell with the fact that there was so much dissatisfaction with the two major party eventual nominees. Uh, uh, my pick was Senator Rand Paul. I liked him because of, you know he's very libertarian on many of these issues. Um, but when I saw that Donald Trump was rising in the polls, I saw that the opportunity was going to be that there would be someone, that there would be no one who would advocate... These sort of, you know, pro-constitution limited government values that I espoused. Um, I think, you know, Trump and his wave was very much a populist wave. Um, and Bernie's was too, but it was a just a different form of populism and one that I didn't quite identify with. Uh, so I, uh, I decided to run because I thought that the Libertarian Party could have a historic vote total, which they eventually did, of course, uh, if they had a candidate who could represent not just you know the conservative movement but also the liberal movement because I did, while I did think that Bernie, if he had won, gotten to the general, he could have won the general, uh, I, I didn't believe that the Democratic Party was going to give him a fair shake because I, I saw how the Republican Party treated Ron Paul. You and
3: the rest of us. Right,
4: <laughs> right. And and with the, de- the superdelegate situation, it's very undemocratic. Democratic that Democratic Party, so I, I was um, uh, I, I knew that uh, we would have Hillary and we would have Trump, and that people would be looking for a third option uh, and Governor Gary Johnson hadn't announced, so I said, well, you know what at a, at a minimum i 'm going to you know force his hand and force him to get in here and force him to start competing. You expressed a lot of concerns about his
1: qualities as a candidate, right? you really sort of thought he was not the guy to be taking advantage of this moment. Is that fair to
4: say? That's correct. I mean, I think that knowing where Aleppo is, is is obviously important, but being able to understand and articulate the libertarian philosophy is something that's deeply important to me. I mean, you ended up being kind of one of the big three candidates, and the other was John McAfee. Right, yes. Who
1: I believe is wanted in Belize in relation with some sort of a murder investigation. All-American badass, John McAfee, yes. (laughs) Is it, Uh, I mean, be honest, is it like, slightly annoying that there's always this element of
4: of anarchy? Weirdness?
1: Not <laughs> well, to put it... Well, you know mean, what? We, we had a naked dancing guy,
4: right, at the convention, bit, but that was not the worst thing that happened that day. Yes, I mean, obviously, yes. I think some people just kind of want to flaunt their, their lifestyle in other people's faces as a way to make a statement. Sometimes that can be effective. Sometimes it can't. I think a political convention is, not, political convention is probably not the best place to do that. <laughs> uh, but, um, yeah, there's always been a bit of tension, in, you know, in the between the anarchist wing and the limited government wing, right? And so I think that was on full display but with John McAfee I think that John McAfee is, a philo- is actually a great philosopher uh, and from what I understand about the corruption in the government Belize I think that they I don't think he actually did kill that person I think that he was framed by a government that wanted to extort him uh, and the more I got to know him the more he seems like a very gentle but it's like by soul. the time you're saying I didn't kill
1: that person in Belize right. it's is it kind late. of too late for you as a presidential right. he's a
4: very gentle soul uh, and he's, he's very always been very kind to me he's very d- deeply passionate mm-hmm. uh, and he has a wonderful story I mean he saved his wife from sex slavery, married her, right, from uh, an incredible story, a brilliant mind, an intellectual, obviously mercurial, and Johnny Depp's going to play him in the movie, and I'm <laughs> I, I'm pissed because I wanted to be able to play a role, but they're not doing the con- presidential <laughs> con-
1: convention, so, so, so. Simone, I had to ask you, the first time I remember seeing you was when you introduced uh, Killer Mike at the rally in Atlanta.
3: Oh my goodness, yes! Which definitely.
1: I remember that being a moment when I and a lot of people looked at Bernie for the first time and were like, Okay, something something's actually going on right, here. because like, what
3: is Killer Mike doing with Bernie Sanders, yeah. right? And actually, earlier that day, we had recorded a barbershop conversation between Killer Mike and Bernie, where it's literally Bernie sitting in the barbershop chair at Killer Mike's barbershop. He owns a barbershop in Atlanta called the Swag Shop. I get my hair cut there when I'm in Atlanta. They're great. And Bernie's just like sitting in the chair shooting the shit with Killer Mike, <laughs> talking about stuff like uh, Second Amendment rights and health care and uh, like weed. Like, it's super crazy. And I think um, what Killer Mike, like the support of people like Killer Mike represented for Bernie Sanders is that he is somebody that did speak to certain swaths of the electorate. You know, Killer Mike represents like that hip hop genre, but he's also like an activist, right? And you saw lots of and but he also like represents young people. Killer Mike is like almost forty years old, but you, he represents young folks. Like young folks feel in tune with what Killer Mike is talking about. And that's I think that's but how part did that of the come reason. about. The Killer Mike thing? Did he so, reach out to you guys? Or? Yeah, it was like a mutual thing. And so uh, Marcus Farrell, who was our African-American... Um, outreach director had been saying like, you know, we gotta talk to Killer Mike. I think Killer Mike, like Killer Mike and Bernie, we should do a thing. You gotta talk to Killer Mike, and Killer Mike had heard about Bernie clearly. You know, he's tuned in, he watches television, and we kind of like just reached out to him and was like, hey, Bernie wants to meet Killer Mike. Let's make this thing happen. They chatted on the phone, they hit it off, and I even think Bernie was a little like, okay, Killer Mike, you want me to talk to somebody whose name is Killer Mike? I was like, look, you, Michael Rinder. <laughs>
1: I mean, that, Don't worry. that takes a little bit of courage as a politician so, to, like- to- be like, because you know you're going to be fielding questions on the news.
3: Like, Absolutely, like how this many guy's other, got killer
1: in his name. How many
3: other Democratic candidates for president do you think would like go out on the campaign show with somebody named Killer Mike, right?
0: <laughs> Not a I lot would
3: of have. people, I right? would have. You went yeah. yeah, you're, yeah. right. you're like, we, gotta, we gotta got got take no chances. But I thought it was really cool. And then uh, Bernie actually went to um, like a, a a local, like in the cut food spot with Killer Mike that day. And they sat down, like Bernie ordered pork chops. Killer Mike had sweet potato pie. They just had a whole conversation. And folks were walking in like, Bernie, we love you. Thank you for coming down here. We see it. And I think it humanized him. And what I think other politicians can take from that is the American electorate are looking for really authentic, just candid folks who are going to tell it like it is, speak Freely and candidly and authentically about the issues um, and be willing to sit down and have a conversation with people. And there were things that Bernie clearly didn't get all the way right, but I think that's one thing he hit the nail on the head on.
1: Yeah. I remember, Austin, like in in late spring of last year, there was this spate of commentaries from all sorts of media, including like, you know, my employer who are not normally libertarian friendly, talking about Gary Johnson, like, hey, maybe this will be the guy that conservatives will go to because they're not going to go to Trump. Yeah. And then they, Kind of went to Trump. Was right. that a surprise to you, or was it just a disappointment, or what?
4: Well, both, right? Um, I think that the the issue really was the the vice presidential pick, right? Uh, Bill Weld, former governor of Massachusetts at a time. He, he's sort of a liberal Republican, uh, and I think that the that the issues that the conservatives had was that he went on MSNBC and essentially vouched for Hillary, which they they felt as if he was a ringer for hillary uh and a, a lot of the bernie supporters who people who were looking at uh, gary johnson as an alternative i think were even turned off by that too because a lot of them didn't like hillary they, they didn't like how she treated bernie they didn't like how they pushed him aside what exactly
1: did he say relating to hillary
4: uh well he went he on to her. Yeah, didn't he yeah he, he said he yeah voting voting yeah, yeah yeah vouched for her right and, and uh, so i think people saw uh, the conservatives saw that and thought to themselves with well, any chance that we were going to vote for these guys now it's gone um so there were a lot of even libertarians who went and voted for uh for Donald Trump, and you know, again, the elements of populism on the right has some has some libertarian strains, and it's mi- but it's mixed with a nasty nativism as well, uh, and so it's it's been problematic, of course, because in the the long history of the uh, I- intellectual ideologies, the neoconservative movement, which had power in the Republican Party, has now been pushed aside. The, the populists are ascendant, and the libertarian movement is sort of left trying to determine what we are, what we're all about. Um, and you know, for me, running as a Republican right now is actually an interesting opportunity because no one can define what a Republican is. Uh, and so I might as well say... It's anybody's
3: say, game. Right, it's anybody's <laughs> game,
4: right? In every crisis and opportunity. Um, so I would say that when it came to the Republican Party, they, they were not ready to, to accept someone like Governor Gary Johnson. They did not see him as sufficiently on their side on certain issues like freedom of religion and other things that are extremely important to them, which is why they should have nominated me.
3: Plug. <laughs>
1: you You kind of had a reputation as being the kind of the youthy social media candidate in the libertarian right, yeah. primary. I talk about some of the methods that you use to try and message to people
4: um, actually the I, I feel like I was one of the first pioneers as a politician to use live streams to interact with. like a year people. and a half ago that was Facebook live was still
1: well, fairly yeah, novel. I
4: actually had an advantage. Before over like people in grocery
1: store checkout lines were Facebook live streaming yes, themselves. <laughs> and,
4: and it was great because it was like fall of 2015 and you couldn't live stream to Facebook unless you had a blue check mark. <laughs> and, I, and I was the only one who had a blue check mark. So I was able to, to do that. And all the other presidential candidates who were like trying to cozy up were like, Hey Austin, by the way, how do you do that? Uh, you know, because we were raising significant money. I I still am. I'm, it's actually a very powerful tool. And the thing that made it so different was that instead of just talking to my audience, I'm talking with my audience. They, they come in and I see their questions and I'm talking to them. I say, call them out by name. It makes it very personal. Uh, and then when they donate or, and when they come into the live streams, they feel like they're a part of it, right? It's, it's, no, it's personal politics. It's true democracy, I think, like we all really wanted to say it, because I get to hear what they care about, what issues matter, and then I can craft my message going forward to make it more popular, which is you know a good tool for a politician to have. But I think this is actually a really revolutionary tool, it's something that I, I think more politicians will make use of. It's a great way to fundraise. Uh, so social media is it itself is great, but the live streams are the thing. That's that's the future, I think, for politicians because you get that access that you would never have. I mean, can you imagine Hillary Clinton sitting down and doing a live stream like, hello, fellow kids. You know, it's, gonna, it, it's, it's not going to be like, it, it's just not going to be personal because she's not personal. And I think that'll actually be a good thing going forward. We'll have more authentic politicians in the future.
1: Um, Simone, talk a bit about on the Bernie
4: side, how you uh, came up with a messaging strategy. What
1: was your initial thinking and how did that change as you got a little bit experienced watching him on the trail?
3: So I think we came into it, um, you know, Bernie clearly has very strong opinions, I don't know if you know. Um, (laughs) And he believed, like the core of our, the underlying thing of our entire message was, we live in a rigged economy that's kept in place by a system of corrupt campaign finance. Like we literally repeated that everywhere we went, like internally on the communications team. And you had the advantage
1: of a candidate who's had that message for pretty much 40 years. For
3: 40 years, like if you look at videos from Bernie from like 25, 30 years ago, He's literally talking about we lived in a rigged economy kept in place by a system of corrupt campaign finance. Like, the economy is rigged. So it, um, we had, like, history to draw from on Bernie because this is literally what he has been talking about his entire, like, political career since he burst onto the scene in Burlington, Vermont and won this mayoral race, talking about we live in a rigged economy kept in place by a system of corrupt campaign finance.
1: Um, obviously, early in the campaign, there were some people noticed that there was an opportunity for kind of a left populist candidate in this election, but you must have been a little worried, like, Look at Bernie Sanders. Like, it's two years ago. Feel the burn slogan doesn't exist yet. No one really knows who Bernie is. And you're like, this is this gonna
3: Bernie. is going to bring the populist movement to the left. Right. And it was, I, I think. You must, have, he, you must
1: have went through your head when you started the campaign. Like, started, is this really the like, right guy for I was this? like,
3: look, you know, is Bernie going to be the guy that's going to, like, ignite the fire? But once you went to a rally, you knew. You can feel it. Like, there's, there, there's nothing like a Bernie Sanders rally. In Hitler. And I've been to a lot of political rallies. And I've just never felt anything like that in the room. The only other time I felt that was with President Obama. Mm-hmm. At, a, at an Obama rally, really. And it was, it was when, I, when I felt that, when I experienced it, I'm like, oh, my God. This is... This is this is literally the political revolution, and so although clearly Senator Sanders didn't go on to win um, the nomination, I definitely think he sparked a movement, and movements are what literally move the needle and create change in this country. So one could argue, in the end, he actually won.
4: Can, can I ask a question quickly? I mean, do you think that the movement that Bernie Sanders sparked ultimately will be realized through the Democratic Party because he's very independent, and the Democratic Party, as it, such as it is, seems to have you know given power over to their establishment that the you know the Clintonites still seem to reign supreme, do you think that there's some opportunity other, otherwise, or is, is the Democratic Party really the only way that that could be realized?
3: You know, I think there are other ways. I think that you know, the Democratic Party um, as a whole, and we're talking about the DNC, the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DGA, the DSCC, all of the DS, whatever, whatever. All the
1: G acronyms. All the
3: Ds and whatever's. You know, when we talk about the party, I think that there, are still institute, there's still institutions, and historically, institutions have to be pushed. Very rarely do the institutions do what they're supposed to do, like on just for goodwill. Like think about it. Like if we just depended on the institution, we would still probably be sitting at segregated lunch counters, because the institution wasn't going to do what it was supposed to do. Um, we we might still be like talking about slavery. So I think that the movement that he sparked, you see groups like Swing Left, groups like the Indivisible Project, groups like Run for Something, folks like um, Rise to Run, an advisory board that I'm on, all of these really grassroots groups that have popped up in the absence of leadership from the party. Because, you know, the party was in like this limbo space. We didn't have a chair. We didn't have the White House anymore. And so it took us a while to get a chair. Then once we got a chair, it's taken a minute for Tom Perez to put his platform together. So I think in the absence of that, these grassroots groups have popped up and said, well, this is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to lead. And this is how we're going to move. And I think it's those groups that are literally going to help change the face of American politics. And the party won't be able to help but come along.
1: So Bernie had to make the decision to join the Democratic Party yes. and run in the Democratic primary. And Austin, you yes, yes. you have now made a similar decision, which is that you're, you announced as a Republican candidate Correct. for Senate in Missouri. And you said you went out and polled people and said, hey, look, I want to run for a major party. Who should I run with? Uh,
4: Yes. um, I spent about two months and uh, made about 4,000 phone calls directly to my supporters, my personal cell phone, and said...
3: You called people personally?
4: Yes. All of them. Y'all, this is
3: what politicians should be doing. Right. You had Thank to pick you. up the phone and make a phone call. Yeah. Okay.
4: So, so, and out of those people, 100% said run, 98%, a little bit more maybe, said run as a Republican. Uh, and they said that they think the opportunity is there to bring in the ideas, which is what matters. Parties are, are just tools. Parties are, are not repositories of philosophy, no matter how much they may try and be so. They, they, it's the platform of the candidate that matters. Uh, so, you know, I'm pushing a broad uh, platform in, in this race. It's one of, you know, taxes, spending jobs, but also criminal justice justice reform, uh, also foreign policy, one that is you know, not quite so hyper-interventionist as we had in the past. Uh, so I think the opportunity in Missouri is to try and convince conservative voters that while uh, you know some of my libertarian credentials might be a little spooky, uh, that I, <laughs> th- that that you know the the traditional Republicans have not upheld what they what ha- what was considered traditional Republicanism or conservatism, uh, and you know I think that running as a libertarian actually will help with third-party, independent types, people who a- who absolutely make a big um, swing in elections, and uh, and I actually think that if I were to come up against Claire McCaskill, uh, because she's not been good on things like civil rights. She's not been good on things like civil liberties. She's not been good on criminal justice reform. She's That her base, the people uh, of the progressive base of the Democratic Party would actually come over and say, hey, this is a man who actually fights truthfully for the issues that we do care about, which is why I think that's a great opportunity to win. Because, again, parties... I, really are the problem in many ways. We need to stop looking at someone in their parties. I just met someone in the green room behind uh, the stage, and, the, and they said, um, you know, oh, you're running as Republican. Oh, well, then I can't support you. And it's like, you know, get to know me. You know, who am I? Do you know anything about me? Like, take, take five minutes and just get to know me as a person and, and, and understand my character. So I, I think that the, party is, the parties are very much the problem. Uh, so parties are just tools. How much of your choice
1: of party had to do with ideology and how much had to do with the fact that the incumbent is a Democrat? And so, running on the Republican side gives you an actual.
4: Sure. So it's shot an it. opportunity, correct? So you, you want to understand like how, how to win, right? You want to take an opportunity when it's when it's presented to you. And the Republicans of Missouri uh, are, are, you know, they're conservative, but they're not the kind of conservatives that you would get perhaps in the more deep South. They tend to be a little bit more moderate. And even the Democrats in Missouri are more socially conservative. They tend to be for gun rights. Uh, they tend to be very religious. They tend to be pro-life. And so that's an opportunity for someone who is a pro-life, pro-constitution, uh, pro-liberty Republican. Republican candidate with a background in outsider politics to come in and I think make big waves, eventually the Republican Party will field an establishment challenger against me, someone who will uphold those kind of what they quote traditional values, which you might consider authoritarianism in some ways. But, uh, but I think that there's a great opportunity now in this race.
3: Now, now clearly Claire is my girl, but I, what I think um, he, you've identified is the fact that there is a, there's a real opportunity here for, uh, definitely on the Republican side of the aisle, for folks to to run on a platform that really gets back to the basics. Because there are people within the Republican Party who are unhappy with what they've seen currently, what they've seen from the, president, the current president of the United States, what they've seen within their own Republican Party, because they want people to get back to good Republican, good conservative values. And there are people who would argue that the current president, even though he ran on the Republican platform, he's not an actual Republican, he's not a conservative. Um, so I, I think there, you've identified an opportunity. And well,
4: well, what's funny, too, is thank you, and thank you for that, is that uh, people are thumping Attorney General Jeff Sessions because of all the Russia stuff. And I'm like, well, what about the fact that he's cracking down on weed? What about the issues? What about civil? On. Yeah, what about civil asset forfeiture? Right? What about the issues that really matter? Like, those are the things we should be picking apart for. But I mean, I, I had a, a panel actually yesterday talking uh, justice reform with um, a Southern, uh, Southern California congresswoman, I think, uh, Karen Bass.
3: Karen Bass, yeah. Whoa, that.
4: she is wonderful. And we were talking about bail reform and talking about uh, the, the war on drugs and opioids and things like that. And I thought to myself, I cannot wait to win, and sorry, Claire, uh, <laughs> so that so that I can defy all stereotypes and reach across the aisle and have bipartisanship that for once is not bipartisan to screw the American people, but to do some good for the American people. And I think that the opportunity is there. But you know, us grassroots types, the anti-establishment types, Simone, I think we got to work together and stop putting this party label, let this party label define us. We got to start working together we the people, we are an American people and not let the parties control who we are, what we think, what we believe, and what we do.
3: Yeah, George Washington told us not to create these parties. He told us to be the detriment to the American Amen. society. We Amen. ain't listen. George Washington said, don't do this. He wrote a whole letter when he got out of office and said, do not do this. And we didn't listen. And here we are today. Mm. <laughs>
1: Washington said a lot of things.
3: Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is true. I'm just here for the party. Yeah. He said no part.
1: Um, Austin, I think when you, when you declared as a Republican, you gave an interview in which you said, I have the quote here, you said, you know, libertarians, especially my supporters, they want to win. They don't want to sit back and be footnotes to history. They want to be a part of history. Correct. What then is the role of third parties? Is that essentially a concession that third parties are just basically their purpose is to inject issues into the campaign and they're never going to win? Or is it that they're never going to win in now?
4: In part, it depends. If we had proportional representation, that would be something that would help third parties win. But right now, the system is set up that the third parties can't, can't get in. You know, first past the post in California, we've got all kinds of issues that stop third parties from getting on the ballot. They spend all their time and money doing so. Um, and, yeah, I think that it's all about the moment in history. I, I believe, and Jeff Carson and I were discussing last night, because of some of the conversations we were having with con- uh, conservatives – I believe that last year was probably the biggest opportunity the Libertarian Party ever had and probably will ever have in my lifetime. And third parties have always come along historically when there's been tension in the country. Consider the the birth of the Republican Party. Um, obviously, abolition and slavery was coming to the forefront, and there needed to be a party that that stood up for the issues that people really cared about, right? We had John Brown, and we had, you know, the South was beginning to militarize. And the Republican Party, um, the Whig Party, was starting to die down, and some Republican candidates were winning on a local level. Uh, and then, of course, once they elected a president, that was what brought in the sweep. But on the local level, the, the Libertarian Party party would have to start winning some elections, and we're just not seeing that. Um, I I don't see that that's going to happen anytime soon, because there are some institutional problems. The the problem is that the Libertarian Party has all of the same problems of the major parties, with none of the advantages of actually holding any offices. Um, And of course, you know, there is the the fact that there are some people who don't think the the role of the party is to actually win elections. It's more of an educational platform. But actually, can I just say one thing real quick? The, The Libertarian Party does perform a very valuable service in training and giving young activists opportunities to work in campaigns that they would never have anywhere else I'm a you know, poor farm boy from Missouri I, I would have never gotten an opportunity to work on a national presidential campaign if, if in 2008 I hadn't gone to work for Congressman Bob Barr and so I got to see what happens up close and in person, that experience is invaluable and I always encourage my activists you know, that they need to go and they need to take these jobs when Gary Johnson won, despite the fact that he completely disrespected me after you know, the, the victory um, I told my people to go to work Sorry, him. what did he do? I gave him a gift of a, of a flintlock pistol, and he chucked it in the garbage. Uh, because really? I, yeah, because I didn't support his VP pick, but, uh, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, so I, I got it back, and uh, and I'm going to need it because uh, i got a big challenge ahead of me. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would exactly it's a flintlock but uh, yeah I would just say that the official stance
1: of this panel is against political violence
4: right 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 well it's, it's, it's a non-firing replica FYI <laughs> so, anyways but um, no the, the opportunity for the Libertarian Party last year I think was probably the, the last opportunity on a national level to really make a big impact unless there is some other Hillary versus Trump situation in 2020 which I don't see I think you know if you're lucky you'll get Tus- Tulsi Gabbard uh, or Cory Booker or some, some real serious. Democrat, but uh, you know Kamala Harris, I think, is talking about running, which I think the Republicans would love to run against Kamala Harris. Unfortunately, I know that she 's a, a progressive hero in many ways, uh, but there are some young Democrats who would be very attractive uh, to in a bipartisan fashion i mean i, I 'm not trying to give it all away for you guys because I'm, <laughs> but uh, there are some good Democrats out there, and you know it, it was unfortunate when, I, when we saw what happened to Jim Webb. Uh, Jim Webb was a war hero Jim Webb was um, was a an honorable and and proud man who served this country, and he was I think he was denigrated and, and not treated well. If there's no room for people like Jim Webb in the Democratic Party, I mean, then there will be no conservative Democrats, Blue Dog Democrats, and that party needs some some of those people, some of that levity, some of that some people like that. Um, and I would say that uh, the the biggest problem the Democrats face, in my opinion, is that the leaders of the Democratic Party and movement are set of generians. Elizabeth. Warren and and Bernie Sanders. I mean, you need some young blood, but the the, the powers of the Democratic Party are holding so tightly onto control uh, that I'm just not optimistic that the Democratic Party will be able to offer an alternative that would allow a third party to rise in 2020. I think that the opportunity is probably going to be, interestingly, in the Republican Party.
0: Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
4: Again, because where there is chaos, there is opportunity.
1: Uh, Simone, I'd like you to basically continue from there. Like, the Sanders campaign obviously showed that there's all this energy out there for something other than this sort of Obama-Clinton-centrist kind of Democratic Party. you think Bernie will run again? And if not, where does that go?
3: Yeah, so I guess first I'd say is I remember back when Obama decided he was going to run for president, everybody was like, no. You are not our candidate. You are not our guy. Even the Congressional Black Caucus, they supported Hillary Clinton in the 2008 race. They didn't even support Obama. Like, there were all these, quote, unquote, establishment Democrats that sat down, that told, you know, the, the the kid with the funny name from Chicago that it wasn't your turn, <laughs> that you literally cannot win. There were people who literally, you know, flat out said, it, like, look. America's not ready for, like, a black president.
4: Hussein Obama, who, I mean, like, yeah.
3: Barack, who, and, Barack and if Hussein. they are, it's definitely not Barack Hussein Obama. Right. So I think Obama demonstrated that there is an appetite, and, and then Bernie has absolutely demonstrated that there is an appetite for someone that the establishment, quote-unquote, does not necessarily embrace, and for someone who doesn't, um, who isn't, quote-unquote, anointed, if you will, because neither Barack Obama was anointed. Like, now everybody pretends like they were on the Obama train and everyone just loved him. Right. be clear. Be clear. They were not here for Barack Obama. I was. But there were lots of people who were not. And I think we just have to be honest about that. So when you talk about the rise of like Bernie Sanders and these these uh, these populist Democrats who, um, again, are not the choice of the quote unquote establishment people. And I mean, people straight up did not like and still don't like Bernie because he continues to say he's an independent. Because he refuses to join the party, and I think the future Democratic Party is not worrying about who has a D behind their name, but being concerned with who's willing to do the work on behalf of the party. And Bernie, I call him new blue crew Democrats, and in my opinion, Bernie is like a new blue crew Democrat. <laughs> and so will he run, decide to run for president again? I think, you know, if he, dis- if he would like to run, there's definitely a lane for him. He is the most popular, quote-unquote, Democratic politician that we have right now. And so if he decides to run, it's definitely within his purview. But I, it's my hope that 16 people decide to jump up and run for president on the Democratic ticket in 2020.
4: Can I ask you a kind of a personal question? So a lot of my supporters were upset with me because I promised that I would support Governor Gary Johnson. And after he was so disrespectful to me, uh, they, you know, I supported him anyway, because I, its integrity is very important to me but my supporters some of them were very angry and and they refused to do so. So did you feel betrayed when uh, Bernie Sanders endorsed Hillary Clinton?
3: No, I didn't feel betrayed when so. I didn't feel betrayed when Senator Sanders endorsed Hillary Clinton. I voted for Hillary Clinton in the general election like Senator Sanders, and I believe folks have to understand how politics works. And so while, yes, we want to, like, append the system and change things and come in and, like, flip the table over and do things differently, there's still a system with which we have to operate in. And you cannot—sometimes Some sometimes you can change the system from pushing on the outside, but there's also people on the inside that have to do some real work to tweak it. So, like, five, ten years from now, it looks like something different. Part of that system is that when you are running on a party ticket and you lose in a primary— You go and you shake your opponent's hand and you say, I'm with you. Why? Because that's what you, that's what you do. Republicans do this actually very well. I have worked mayoral races where the Republican candidates will literally knock down, drag out, drag people through the dirt and the mud. And then two days later, after they done won the primary, all the Republican candidates are standing up there like, well, we support so-and-so for mayor because this is, you know, she's the best candidate. What? Y'all literally said, like, she was a freaking crook two days ago. Yeah. But they're supporting her, and they're galvanizing all their supporters to do so. On the Democratic side, we're like, well, look, our folks are like, look, I don't think that's what we should be doing. But this is how politics works. One could argue that we should get a new system. Okay, I'm with it, but this is currently the system that we have. And so I think Bernie did the right thing in going out and saying publicly multiple times, that look, I'm supporting Secretary Clinton. Bernie does not agree with Hillary on everything. Okay, like I think they have a different in general. They had the same idea, but there were clearly very different ways of which they thought they were going to get there. You know, Bernie was talking about making public colleges and tuition free. And I remember when the Clinton campaign told us that all of our ideas were unfeasible and were not feasible and pie in the sky. And we need to be pragmatic and talk about things that can actually get done. And Bernie is like, I'm here for a political revolution. So I, I, I didn't feel betrayed. I know there were some some folks that supported the senator that did because. They don't, like, they had not previously been engaged in politics. But I think if you wanna be in the game, if you wanna actually change the rules and like flip the system on its head, these are some of the things you have to do. And I think Bernie did the right thing. And I think if push came to shove and we could do it all over again, if he lost the primary again, he'd do the exact same thing because that's what you're supposed to do.
1: Um, Austin, did you pick anything up from from the Bernie campaign as far as what messaging was going to require in twenty sixteen Do you remember watching that
4: and what what reaction you had to it? Actually, I went to Bernie rallies. I <laughs> like, went during my so you know what I'm talking yeah. about. You,
3: you you can see the people. Like, I oh. went.
4: I, I understood exactly the, what the Bernie supporters. Were complaining about. I, I know why they feel the system is rigged. I think that there was quite a bit of crossover uh, from the libertarian message to the uh, to the Bernie message in the areas of crony capitalism, which I thought thought was really interesting because the timing was that Hillary Clinton had dropped. The, those tapes, we had those tapes dropped, right? Her, her discussions with Goldman Sachs where she had a private position and a public position but I actually studied them very closely and Hillary Clinton was actually a pretty good capitalist in her private uh, in her private life versus the public life because what she was telling some of those Wall Street bankers was she was saying that we have to pretend in public that the system is more rigged than it really is because if we, if we don't then we won't be able to throw out red meat to our democratic base and say oh, okay, well the system is rigged, the system is rigged because of course, in in my understanding of the economic system is that a free market capitalist system is a riotous, anarchic system, almost where spontaneous order can throw people, big business out on its butt. You know, in three weeks or in you know three generations, wealth can be destroyed because of how free market capitalism works. But Hillary Clinton sort of understood that, and she was saying specifically that the messaging of of, uh, of the rigged system was not quite what it was, but that they had to tell their Democratic base that that was what how it was in order to rile them up and to get them angry and also to divert them from the real problems of crony capitalism, which I think Bernie correctly identified. The system is rigged in many ways. You were talking about braiding of hair, a license to braid hair. That is a serious issue that is affecting people in low-income and minority communities, where licensing is stopping them from being able to be uh, gainfully employed and able to practice their trade. Um, and so for me, I think that from Bernie Savannah's I, I recognize that many of them, and this is, I know this is a little inflammatory but many of them did support Donald Trump in the general election because they saw in Trump, whether you think it's authentic or not, authenticity. They saw someone who tells it like it is. Someone who is a, quote, man of the people. Now, I'll leave it to you to determine whether or not that's crazy. real or not. Like,
3: how did the billionaire but but again the well, people of true, but, but still babbling. But Simone,
4: compare it to Hillary Clinton. I mean, Hillary Clinton is not a person of the people. I mean, this is a woman who never, you know, she doesn't do her own grocery shopping, that's for sure. I mean, she's never carried a gun in her life. This is someone who's, you know, he, she treats her staff like like dirt. Uh, And and so she's totally out of touch with the people. So they saw in Donald Trump someone, the people who like Bernie uh, Sanders, right, in places like Michigan where he won those Rust Belt voters, many of those people who came out to vote for Donald Trump were attracted to the same message that Bernie Sanders had. But the Democratic Party's nominee did not support that. So I think I just want to give you a little bit of pushback when you said this is how the system works earlier because in some ways you are contributing to the problem by supporting Hillary Clinton because she went against your values. She went against Bernie's values. She went against my values. I
3: think she went, I think, so look, I, again, I supported Secretary Clinton because I I literally thought she would have made a better, she would have been a leaps and bounds, way better president than Donald Trump. Clearly, like, I don't, I don't think it's a competition. Like, I actually think, like, making Hillary Clinton stand next to Donald Trump is like every woman that's ever been in the office that have, all, that has always done all the real hard work. And then you're standing next to the guy that literally comes in late every day, barely contributes to the project, and he gets a promotion. It's like, damn it, I'm the one that's here working. So, it's, it's, it's kind of like super crazy. But I, I, I definitely, again, I think there are fundamental differences between Secretary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. But I think overall, um, I think they like sexism played a role in this election, like even like not even overt sexism but maybe some closeted like deep seated like deep in the psyche type sexism and I also think that people just did not like Hillary Clinton, they didn't know her but what they knew about her, they did not like her I think what what's what's different between Donald Trump and Secretary Clinton in, this ele- in, in the election was that you had a person whom, Donald Trump was a media personality, everything you knew about him was that he was savvy, he was smart he had these super high rated like television shows, he was a billionaire businessman and you had a 25 year, pl- year plus history of Hillary Clinton, of you know folks saying she was cold she was calculated you know however people felt about the situation with like Bill Clinton and you know what happened when he got impeached whatever people so there's this history that people have a built up history of an of, of image of Hillary Clinton that they did not like And so I don't. What what, what didn't happen early enough in the first time that she ran for president was, folks, there was not an introduction of Hillary Clinton to the American people because there was an assumption that people knew who she was. But what they didn't know about her, they didn't like her. So they didn't introduce the, the great parts, the real, the real Hillary. And you got that post, like at the convention in this year, like in 2016, they started telling the story like who Hillary Clinton was. But by that time, it was too late. You know, my dad was not a Hillary Clinton supporter. He did not like Hillary. He literally looked me in the face and said, well, Hillary Clinton is a crook. I was like, you got to be kidding me. What have you been reading and what have you been watching? But, like, there were a large swath of American people that felt that way. So I think there were lots of things that played into why she won and why she lost. I absolutely agree that there was some crossover between these Bernie supporters and these Donald Trump supporters. I think Donald Trump sold people, like, up the river and promised them a lot of things that he knew he wasn't going to deliver on. He, he knew the rhetoric Donald Trump is a mastermind at manipulating the media and a people manipulator. And if you tell me, if you, with a charismatic speech, that you're going to be about change, you're going to make things different. And in some places, he spoke to the worst parts of the, of like the American electorate. Because um, so you, know, you don't think he's
4: going to lock her up?
3: you know, like I'm lock her up. Like he, he, there were, there was lots of things in there we got to unpack. But if you, you're telling people who literally are working 40, 50, 60 hours a week and still can't make enough money to put food on the table to feed their families that like you're getting shafted, you're getting a bad deal. And me as the businessman, I'm going to make things work for you. Folks who are in a dire situation who are literally feeling like, look, I gave hope and change a try. Let me just give Make America Great Again a try too. This is also a type of change that might do something for me. You know, they're gonna take a they're gonna take a shot and they they sh- they are sh- gonna shoot their shot.
4: This is a brilliant analysis, and I would I would agree with a lot of what you have to say. But uh, of course, the ultimate cl- conclusion I would say wouldn't be to vote for Hillary. I would just say that uh, from a marketing standpoint, well, I think the big problem with Hillary was not that people you know wasn't weren't introduced to her because she's been in public politics for so long, Secretary of State and Senator, uh, First Lady. But I think that the issue was with the marketing was that her marketing was about them the democrats marketing right now and bernie sanders said this it was bad recently.
3: it was about they're so bad bernie
4: yes bernie sanders said this the democratic us, party brand is, is horrible it's love trump's hate right you're putting your opponent's name on your your signs and your branding it's like vote for us because we're better than the next guy well who's the next guy all right so we're always looking forward to that so you, True, you, better bra- better branding would be good for the democratic party better, deal. B- better candidates <laughs> yeah better deal right
3: better yeah. pizza papa
4: john's and so austin I think you also
1: said that you thought Hillary Clinton would have been a better outcome than Donald Trump, but you had a slight you had a slightly different reason. Ah
4: yes. So the old Alexander <laughs> Hamilton line, right? So so the argument that the the founding fathers some of them made where they talked about why would Hillary, you know when I was putting it in a modern context was that, you know, better to have someone at the head of, of government who we can oppose and who are, we are not responsible for, right, if, if Donald Trump were to take power, right, so it would be per, perhaps an embarrassment to the Republican Party or the conservative movement. Uh, and so the reason why Hillary Clinton could ostensibly have been a better candidate was that the Republicans would have actually been voting to overturn Obamacare like they have been when Obama was the president of the United States. They would actually, because Republicans... But they wouldn't be getting signed by the president. No, but the, the point is, is that at least they would be clean you know go at least they would be adhering to the principles they claim to have i I always say that republicans run like libertarians but then they govern like democrats so when they actually get into power they want to wield the ring they get they get the ring of power and they want to they want to wield it they don't want to throw it into the into the fires of 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 mount mordor right they don't want to do that so so (laughs) that's doom right mount doom yeah thank you <laughs> so 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 the, so the issue of course is that the Republican party is 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 not a, a good party for governing. They do not govern well. I and, mean
3: clearly. Okay, right. y'all ran on repeal and replace for 7 years and yeah. they finally get the White House. Exactly. Both chambers of Congress, and you have zero plan, you're like, we're going to write this bill over and, lunch. And now, I'm still floored.
4: And now we have, <laughs> and, and look at the chaos that we have right now. And I think that the problem is, is that they, they were never really, many of them were never really principled in the first place. They were just power hungry, and you know you see that in both parties. But the difference between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party is that the Democratic Party tends to be more unified in opinion. They tend, you know, from the collectivist aspect, they tend to have a little bit more of unanimity, when, especially when it came to passing Obamacare, right? They passed it, I think, with 60 votes. All the Democrats were together. But within the Republican Party are many different strains of ideologies. Uh, you have paleoconservatism, you have traditional conservative, Burkean conservatives, libertarianism, all of these different schools of thought. Now there are some, of course, on the Democratic side as well, but they tend to be more unified. So the Republican Party, the problem with them is that now that they have power, uh, the factions are at war, and paleoconservatism, which is the old like Pat Buchananite right, tied in with isolationist philosophy, is ascendant. Uh, it's the, the the youth movement of it is called the alt right, uh, and and that's what we're seeing right now. Because but but the unfortunate uh, well, unfortunately for the United States, is that they're not able to govern effectively. Uh, and so I, I saw Hillary Clinton, in a way, as as for the government, as for the Republicans to be held to their standards, because otherwise, you know, when they're given power, they wouldn't do it. And this is exactly what we've seen.
1: Um, Simone, I saw another interview that you gave in which you were talking about the messaging strategy for the Bernie campaign and saying that you and other people uh, on the campaign were, you know, trying to kind of streamline and perfect Bernie's message, but he eventually just realized you had to let let him be himself, let Bernie be Bernie, and that that was the secret to the success of, of the yeah. campaign.
3: Yeah, you can't give this man talking points. Like, literally, people would we would write speeches for Bernie. People would work a long time on these speeches. You'd give them to the senator, you'd print them out, and then you knew your stuff was going to get rewritten when the morning of his event, you'd give him the stuff, and he'd say, do you have a yellow notepad? you're like, oh, no, Bernie's about to rewrite the speech. And, you take, <laughs> and he takes a notepad and he goes into the corner and he jots some stuff down. And he goes out there and he gives a whole other speech, which would be a great speech, by the way. Which is not the speech that a number of people wrote. And I, I think that as someone who's like a campaign staffer, like you want a principal that literally will, okay, I'm writing this. I need you to read it. Maybe you should do a little, do a little give me a little ad lib. I need you to keep to the outline. So it's, like, uh, stressful for a staffer, but it's also, like, very refreshing that, you know, I, I, I think I said somewhere in a publication, like, nobody puts Bernie in a corner. Like, nobody puts, baby, <laughs> nobody puts Bernie in a corner. And Bernie Sanders is going to go out there, and he's going to be Bernie Sanders every single day. And for some folks, you know, that could be frustrating, but it's also really, really refreshing that you've got someone that is so committed and dedicated to the ideals um, that they believe in and the values that they hold.
1: Because You hear that a lot from people who were involved with the Bernie campaign, and they tend to phrase it as though it's a very specific to Bernie thing, but I know that like people said that about the Donald Trump campaign, that they, you had to let Donald Trump be. And I, for the other podcast I previous for HuffPost, we talked to Jen Palmieri, who was the communications director for Hillary Clinton. She said the same thing and about And she Hillary. said, yeah, we eventually learned you just had to let Hillary be Hillary. So is this like a general piece of advice, masquerading <laughs> as a more specific one, or does it only apply to certain candidates? Maybe so.
3: I mean, I think at the end of the day, because at the end of the day, whoever, whatever you're running for, whether it's President of the United States or like Dog Catcher of like Fulton County like it's the it's it's Bernie Sanders name on the ticket it's Hillary Clinton's name on the ticket, it's Donald Trump's name on the ticket, like, and if you've never like, jumped up and decided to put your name on the line and run for office, like, Austin you know, like, when you put your name on the line, like, that is literally your name, your reputation your image, like, you got a lot riding on that, so at some point in time like, clearly you want to win, so you'll listen to consultants some people that have done it before really smart young kids that you hire that can work Twitter and Facebook <laughs> and do your digital analytics, and you want to listen to these folks because these are people that clearly know what they're doing, but at the end of the day, as a candidate, you want to go with your instincts because it's literally you that decided to get in on this. Yeah, it's you that decided to put your name on the line, and I think we as staffers like literally just have to remember that across the board. Um, and you can only push somebody so far. I'm sure you've got staffers that are like, "This is what you got to do. We got to put it like this. Don't say this little thing that you said before anymore." And you're like, "Okay."
4: Actually, yeah. Actually, that's that's interesting. I learned so much more about myself by running for office, See, uh, and and uh, I don't let my staffers tell me what to do. Exactly. Uh, but, that frustrates um, them. But let I me speak listen. for your staffers. They're frustrated. Yeah. Yeah. My Campaign manager here but I, I do I do listen to him right and I, I be- because I believe in a check and balance right you, you can't know everything uh, so you have to be able to listen to your advisors uh, but when it came a lot of people actually asked me they're like Austin who runs your social media it's great I'm like well that's me bro um, uh, I, I think that's important because that makes it authentic but of course you can't do everything you do have to delegate certain roles and tasks and giving up you know power is sometimes you know scary because you're always worried but I actually think that it's better when you do that because in, in many ways you know trusting your people empowers them Gives them opportunities that they need, right? Because uh, you know, a campaign is a temporary part. A revolution, in some ways, is going to be permanent, right? We're always mm-hmm. trying to get to the next level of, of freedom. Um, and so, I would say that you know, by empowering young people, by empowering your campaign manager, by empowering the people who are working for you, you're going to empower them for the future when your campaign is over, whether you win or lose, and give them opportunities. I mean, look at yourself, perfect example. I mean, you have been empowered. You know, you're, you're standing here on stage. You're you're now a respected you know speaker, public speaker, and someone that people look yeah. up to. Yeah.
3: Two years ago, when nobody was trying to asked me what I had to say, even though I was right. really smart and I'm right. saying the same things <laughs> I'm right. saying right now.
4: Yeah, and ha- I had to run for president to get on this stage, right? <laughs> so it was, you know, it's challenging, but and sometimes you've got to really work for it, and opportunities aren't always handed, for, handed to you, but I mean, I think delegating authority is good, but, you know, when you do run for office, it is about your reputation. You, again, you learn things about yourself that you don't know, including some things that aren't true that were made up, but, um, <laughs> but that's the, the world that we, we live in. Okay, last question for both of you guys. What was your biggest takeaway
1: from the 2016 campaign?
3: Uh, so
1: what have future campaigns learned from, from
3: this? I guess, one, that social media is a really powerful tool. And two, that, that the end, the, I guess what, I, what was so shocking for me is when the, you know, the grab them by the you know what tapes came out. I, was, I had a nap that day, and I woke up from my nap, and I was like, what the heck is happening? And I was like, oh. I looked over the television, I was like, well, Donald Trump is done. And he went on to win. And I guess what I took from that, and I think most—I uh, hope everyone takes from it—is that look, we we would hope that like common decency and like sad and the, just the standard way of which we tell our children we should behave um, is the way in which people think about like folks in power, but it's absolutely not. And so sometimes you have to, I think we have to just get really creative and, and sometimes be unconventional um, if we would like to be successful. And so we have to be willing to think outside of the box and not lean back on what we think um, is, are the norms because the norms do not apply in this current world that we live in. Apparently,
4: yeah. Okay. So so for myself, actually, one of the most powerful lessons that I learned during my campaign was that you could be successful not by bashing people over the head with your ideas. Uh, Obviously, politicians love to hear themselves talk and they love to tell people what they think should be done. But one of the most powerful lessons that I learned was early on in the campaign, when I would go out and I would meet people at events, I would shake their hand, ask them questions about what the issues were that they cared about, uh, and not say what I believed, just simply listen to them. And at the end of the conversation, after having said nothing about myself for the most part or what I believe, they said, well, you know what, you just earned my vote. And I was like, "What? What? What do you mean? I, I you don't know? I could be a, a killer, you know what I mean? I could be like John McAfee, <laughs> but no, but I, you know, he didn't kill the guy. Allegedly. He didn't kill the guy. Allegedly, allegedly. I love John. <laughs> no, but what I learned was is that all." Well, uh, People feel like their, their leaders are out of touch, and they really are. Uh, so, you know, when I made those phone calls for my, for my exploratory committee, right, when I called people personally, that personal touch is dynamic. That personal touch can change people's lives. People call me now, they, they contact me now, and they say, Austin, you inspired me. I'm going to run for office now because, you know, I reached out to them on a direct message. I try and answer all my own messages directly as much as I can, all my own emails, answer all my personal calls, answer all my mail as much as possible so that I can have that personal connection with my supporters but when you listen to the american people you hear what their what the problems are that are afflicting them and for me of course i'm a bit of an ideologue right so i want libertarian ideas to be ascendant and i think there's a little libertarian in pretty much everybody there's everybody's libertarian about something whether it's you know cannabis or criminal justice reform or or taxes or spending and so once you've listened to them then there's an opportunity for agreement because once you find that opportunity for agreement you agree with them and then you're friends and you can disagree on 90% of the issues But at the end of the day, if you're friends and you're sitting on the front porch, you can talk about the things that you disagree as respectable individuals, as as the American people. And we can come together and solve the problems and and learn how to get along despite our differences. So the biggest lesson I learned was that as a politician, it's better to keep your mouth shut and be a good listener.
3: (laughs) We are the world.
1: (laughs) I agree. All right, my name is Zach Young, I my guests have been Simone Sanders, National hey. Press Secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign, hey, and hey. Austin Peterson, former presidential candidate and current Senate candidate. Thank you. This has been a recording of the So That Happened podcast, live from Pasadena, California. We'll be back to regular programming next week. Thank you all for coming out.
3: Thank you, yeah. you so good, thank you. Well done. Well done. Awesome, well done. thank you so much. Oh, a double hand
1: So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by me. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Zach Young, and this week we were joined by Simone Sanders, CNN commentator and national press secretary for the Bernie Sanders campaign, and Austin Peterson, runner-up in the 2016 Libertarian presidential primary and current Republican Senate candidate in Missouri. So That Happened is available on iTunes at itunes.com slash Happened. Check out the whole family of HuffPost podcasts in the iTunes store, and while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to sothathappened at huffingtonpost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.